What is honor? Air. A trim reckoning. Who hath it? He that died a Wednesday. Doth he feel it? No. Tis insensible and yea to the dead. But will it not live with the living? No. Why? Detraction will not suffer it. Therefore, I'll none of it. Honor is a mere scutcheon. Hello, folks, and welcome to Air Read This. My name's Ash, and today I rise from the ground like feathered mercury to talk to you about Henry IV, Part One by William Shakespeare. Originally performed in around 1596, the first quarto edition of 1599 carries the title The History of Henry IV, suggesting it was originally conceived of as a standalone play. Clearly, though, there was much demand for a sequel. What became Henry IV Part I received more editions than any other play of Shakespeare's. There were four printings in the playwright's lifetime, a further four editions appearing before 1700. And its popularity grew from there, the 18th century's critic-in-chief Dr Johnson saying, None of Shakespeare's plays are more read than the first and second parts of Henry IV. Perhaps no author has ever in two plays afforded so much delight. The great events are interesting, for the fate of kingdoms depends upon them, the slighter occurrences are diverting, and except one or two, sufficiently probable. The incidents are multiplied with wonderful fertility of invention, and the characters diversified with the utmost nicety of discernment, and the profoundest skill in the nature of man. Johnson, despite being both a Christian and a royalist, was also charmed by the unhistorical and corrupting influence of Falstaff. One of Shakespeare's most famous creations, Sir John Falstaff is a coarse, thieving, sack-sodden, fat old knight. A scourge upon chivalry, a misleader of princes, but nevertheless, in Johnson's words, a figure of perpetual gaiety. Harold Bloom has described Falstaff as the true and perfect image of life, and with his monumental gravitational pull, the fat knight has attracted more attention than any other figure in the history plays. With the exception of Hamlet, writes J.B. Priestley, going one further, no character in literature has been more discussed than this Falstaff. Henry IV Part I, as we know it today, continues Shakespeare's second tetralogy of English history plays and picks up a year or so after the events of Richard II in 1402. Like that play, Shakespeare's sources include Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles of British History as well as Edward Hall's own chronicle telling the history of the houses of York and Lancaster. Shakespeare may have also read the first version of a long poem on those civil wars written by his contemporary Samuel Daniel. He would certainly be aware of his late literary rival Christopher Marlowe's success with his own histories, Tamburlaine and Edward II, and there was also the anonymous play The Famous Victories of Henry V, which had been knocking about since at least the 1580s, and Shakespeare draws upon this play for his next few histories. In Richard II, we left Henry Bolingbroke having successfully taken the crown, deposed Richard, and they'd made a good show of being upset by news of his murder, news that to a usurping king must have been smooth and welcome despite his protestations. Though I did wish him dead, I hate the murderer, love him murdered. A sentiment as convincing as its forced rhyme. Henry resolved to make a voyage to the Holy Land and wash the blood from off his guilty hand. But as we see from the opening of today's play, he still intends to travel to Jerusalem, but has been stopped from doing so by trouble with the Welsh. The historical Henry was allegedly told in a prophecy that he would die in Jerusalem, but he never actually made the journey. Instead, after an anticlimactic reign dominated by damage control and illness, he died in Westminster Abbey in the Jerusalem Chamber. 
We'll look a little more at the real Henry's reign in our upcoming episode on the history of Shakespeare's history plays, but for now we will address the portrait of him Shakespeare gives us. Is a portrait of a man stifled by bitterness and frustration, just what we might expect from this once triumphant usurper, now harried by internecine quarrels and quarrelsome innards. This humbling of Bolingbroke is the play's first surprise, which arrives in Henry's opening lines. So shaken as we are, so one with care, find we a time for frighted peace to pant and breathe short-winded accents of new broils to be commenced in strands afar remote. Gone is the rival's son that melted Richard as if he were a mockery king of snow, and Henry is here usurped in his own play. For despite the title, the focus of Henry IV, part one, is not on Henry, but his son, Prince Hal, the future King Henry V. We've heard Bolingbroke refer to this son in Richard II. Can no man tell me of my unthrifty son? Inquire at London amongst the taverns there, for there they say he daily doth frequent with unrestrained loose companions. We are soon to meet these companions. The loosest and least restrained of all is Falstaff, the show-stealing huge hill of flesh. That 1599 title page in full reads, deep breath, The history of Henry IV, with the battle at Shrewsbury, between the king and Lord Henry Percy, surnamed Henry Hotspur of the North, with the humorous conceits of Sir John Falstaff. More of a trailer than a title, really. It is significant in demonstrating not only Falstaff's popularity, but also the importance of Hotspur, Prince Hal's antagonist. The play's third Henry is, as his nickname implies, a hot-headed, tempestuous knight, son of the Earl of Northumberland. The Percys had helped Bolingbroke depose Richard II, and Hotspur appears in the previous play, giving us a taste of his character as he snorts about honour like a paddocked bull. Or Merle, thou liest, his honour is as true in this appeal as thou art all unjust, and that thou art so, there I throw my gauge, to prove it on thee to the extremest point of mortal breathing. Seize it, if thou darest. Hotspur, as we shall see, is more than a caricature of chivalry. His death at the hands of Prince Hal is lingered upon with more feeling than if he were a mere obstacle to a happy ending. His death deserves to be called a tragedy, and it is one that is sadly foreshadowed in Richard II, when in swearing loyalty to his future enemy Henry IV, the doomed young Hotspur pledges his service. Such as it is, being tender, raw and young, which elder days shall ripen and confirm. In performance, it is often Hotspur and Falstaff that jostle for the audience's attention. The legendary actor David Garrick found Hotspur a plumper part than the prince. However, the story of this play and its sequel is without question the ascent of Hal. We witness in this first part his assumption of a princely bearing with his slaying of his rival Hotspur, the beginnings of his distancing from Falstaff and his drinking companions, and something of reconciliation with his ailing father. Joining me today to discuss the trajectory of Hal, and much more besides, are the co-creators of The Show Must Go Online, Rob Miles and Sarah Peachy. If you're a fan of watching Shakespeare, Rob and Sarah probably need no introduction, as for the last seven months, The Show Must Go Online has been keeping us entertained throughout lockdown with full live performances of Shakespeare's plays in the order they were written. For those of you who haven't yet seen one of their shows, they perform a full play live on YouTube every week, and so far they have done a whopping 32 all of which you can watch back for free. There's a link in the episode description box below where you can find all of their plays. One benefit of performing on Zoom is that Rob and Sarah have a global cast, and since everyone is performing from their own homes, they're able to have as many actors as there are characters, something usually out of the question with the history plays, where 20 or 30 parts is more than a company can feasibly afford without having actors double up. 
So if you haven't seen them before, check them out. They've just released their production of Coriolanus. And next up, in fact, tomorrow, is The Winter's Tale. We recorded our conversation back in June. And with customary bravado, I was confident I could get this episode out in time to coincide with Rob and Sarah's release of their two parts of Henry IV. And to be fair, I only just missed it by a mere four months and 17 plays. But the good news is you can now see both parts of The Show Must Go Online's Henry IV, and I'll link each one uh, in each corresponding episode. Which brings me to more smooth and welcome news. You can hear more from Rob and Sarah on our next episode, which will be, of course, about Henry IV Part Two, And I'll also release an extended interview where we talk more about how they got started on The Show Must Go Online. So a huge thank you to Rob and Sarah for coming on the podcast way back when. And without further ado, let's get into the play. So back in June, I started by asking them whether there were any happy correspondences with having a cast from around the world in a play that feels like a little world itself. Oh, I see. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) I'd love to be able to say yes, but the cast for Henry IV Part One was the most British cast (laughs) that we've had since we started. Um, so, so unfortunately, I can't really speak to that. Maybe in, we're about to enter rehearsals for Merry Wives of Windsor, which has people from uh, Australia and America again, uh, and Malta as well, yes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, we might start to see some more kind of perspectives being shared there. Um, similarly, hopefully in Henry the Fourth Part Two, we'll start to get more Americans involved in that one. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, and obviously we're always at the mercy of who applies, right? For whatever reason, maybe this play is better known here or more popular here than it mm. is in the other territories. Um, I think with the history plays in general, that's the case. I think a lot of people internationally, because it's not their history, I suppose, are, are slightly more either intimidated or just disengaged from them because they, they feel less universal, perhaps. That said, though, I think um, Henry the Fourth Part One for me is the start of a departure from that tradition of, of maybe what makes history plays feel more intimidating because it's not as much to do with the court and it's almost um, more to do with everything but the court because you've got Hotspur in the Northern Rebellion, which is not based in the court. You've got Falstaff and Hal in the pub, which is not based in the court. Mm-hmm. So two, two out of your three main storylines aren't interested in what the king's doing. Yeah, <laughs> And even the king and his kind of journey through that play to me feels like the part of a supporting actor being there to respond to Hal and Hotspur respectively. Um, it's not really about his journey through the play. I always, as a director, love to look at expectation versus reality. What is a character going into a scene to find? And then what do they actually get confronted with? And how does that tip them off balance? And there's a perfect example of that in the opening of uh, Henry IV Part One, where the king, in having in Richard II said, I'm going to atone for my sins of having Richard killed by going to Jerusalem and going on a crusade, because that was kind of the patch fix for anyone back in those days. Mm. He then doesn't get to go. And it becomes uh, almost like Chekhov's Moscow. It's that it's that lofty idea of, oh, I wish I could go and have my ideal life elsewhere, but it's not going to happen because the realities of my life are getting in the way of it. And the fact that that gets reiterated at the start specifically so that then everyone can come in and tell him, no, unfortunately, you can't do that because we've got rebellions here, here, here and here. This is going off over there. No way, mate. No chance. Sorry. It, to me, it's it's a fascinating example of 
it's a statement of intent, right? So this is what the king thinks is going to happen. And this is what you think this play is going to be. And immediately it's like, bang, nope, we're doing something else. Come to the tavern with us. Come and get drunk. Come and have a laugh. Come and do a play extempore where we just, let's play improv games, right? It's insane. Um, and then simultaneously to that, you've got Hotspur and the Northern Barons saying, we want a different version of England. Mm. And we want, we envision our role in, in the ruling class, if you like, mattering more, I suppose. And, you know, when they divide the map, I find that fascinating. The idea that they're almost getting into regional government or at least starting to think about that uh, as a concept, the idea of devolved powers. Glendower will take Wales. You will take everything north of the Trent, etc. To me, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in that period of history, so I can't really speak to how it relates to the actual politics of the time, but I find it fascinating how it interacts with Shakespeare's time and the preoccupations of that time with Elizabeth not having a successor and several of the consequences that get explored across the different history plays that are more interested in what the possible consequences of Elizabeth's eventual demise might be. Mm. Uh, and it's me like all of the history plays are a vehicle more to explore those potential consequences rather than necessarily what was actually happening in the historical time that Shakespeare was writing about, mm. if that makes sense. You know, you think about Jack Cade and the popular uprising. You know, that was another thing that was kicking off at the time because times were very hard and you were getting a lot of social unrest because there was massive inflation, there were crop failures, there were plague, <laughs> you know. So it, it was a time of real social unrest, much like it is now. Um, and that's why, for me, the history plays and the Henry plays, especially if you include Hen the Henry the Sixers as well as Henry the Fourth and Fifth, feel super, super relevant to right now because... Shakespeare was using them to explore, using them as metaphors to explore a time that feels eerily similar to the time that we're living in now, because it was about social unrest, plague, economic crisis. Doesn't sound too unfamiliar, does it? <laughs> so shaken as we are, so one with care, Find we a time for frighted peace to pant, and breathe short-winded accents of new broils to be commenced in strands of far remote. No more the thirsty entrance of this soil shall daub her lips with her own children's blood. No more shall trenching war channel her fields, nor bruise her flowerets with the armed hooves of hostile paces. Those opposed eyes, which, like the meteors of a troubled heaven, all of one nature, of one substance bred, did lately meet in the intestine shock and furious close of civil butchery, shall now, in mutual well-beseeming ranks, march all one way, and be no more opposed against acquaintance, kindred, and allies. The edge of war, like an ill-sheathed knife, no more shall cut his master. In the 1590s, as Shakespeare was writing these history plays, there were repeated outbreaks of plague and several failed harvests. Throughout the land, people starved to death. Compounding the woes of Queen Elizabeth's England, there was the ever-present threat of civil war. And as James C. Bullman writes, one model for the rebellion in the first part of Henry IV 
may have been an attempt by the Northern Catholic Lords in 1569 to advance the cause of Mary Queen of Scots against Elizabeth, an uprising instigated by descendants of the Northumberland Percys. Yet for all the grim material contained in Shakespeare's sources and in the world outside, the Henry IV plays have a decidedly upward curve, owing to their focus on the next king, Henry V. Together, the two parts of Henry IV and Henry V, sometimes collectively called the Henriad, have a comic form, in that the hero rises, ends up on top, and as convention dictates, gets married. Hal begins as a dissolute prince, and ends a pious, though rather less fun, king. The story of his sudden transformation is reminiscent of Thomas a Becket, who we recently discussed in our Murder in the Cathedral episode. Once again, a lavish living young man gives way to a serious-minded adult, a narrative of pious people with a past that was clearly attractive. And in the case of Hal, this was no invention of Shakespeare's. The same pattern is shown in the earlier anonymous play The Famous Victories of Henry V, and had been a historical commonplace since Henry V's death in 1422. John Dover Wilson tells us that practically all the chroniclers, even those writing in the 15th century, agree on his wildness in youth and on the sudden change that came upon him at his accession to the throne. A miraculous transformation then, one that wouldn't be out of place at the resolution of a comedy. And indeed, the first part of Henry IV has several bits and pieces of comic furniture. For starters, instead of being the main character, Henry IV is relegated to the role of overbearing father of the comic mode whose type implore their wayward children to reform to tradition or marry an acceptable suitor. Usually this father figure obstructs the lead from happiness, but eventually they reconcile either by father submitting to lead's desires or vice versa. A notable subverting of this formula is of course Romeo and Juliet, a play with all the right ingredients and signposts for a comedy, but one that swerves into tragedy right at the last minute. According to Stanley Wells, in the first part of Henry IV, the king is anguished by both filial and national rebellion. Just as in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon and Titania must be reconciled before the mortal's course of love can run smooth, so the dissolute Prince Harry must reform and be reconciled with his father before rebellion can be put down. So to achieve national harmony, you must first have domestic harmony. Kingship, like charity, starts at home. And there is a connection to the magical comic world of A Midsummer Night's Dream evident from the opening of the play, as Henry IV wishes his own son Harry were swapped with the warlike Harry Percy of his enemies saying that some night-tripping fairy had exchanged in cradle clothes our children where they lay and called mine Percy his Plantagenet. All this makes for quite a departure from Shakespeare's previous history play. In its 1608 quarto, Richard II had been titled The Tragedy of King Richard II. It is a play which bears many structural resemblances to Marlowe's tragical Edward II, a play about Richard's great-grandfather. If catastrophic falls of that nature run in the family, Shakespeare and Marlowe seem to be telling us, at least they're nice enough to skip a couple of generations. Likewise, Shakespeare's earlier history plays on Henry VI and Richard III each have a tragic shape, every play culminating in at least one major character's death. But as R.J. Dorius says, the tragic hero's willingness to take terrible risks, to throw away powers and life itself for a good cause, is not demanded of the kings of the histories. They are more conservative, their mission is less to question and dare than to reconcile and maintain. Marlowe's renovation was to make staged history less about instruction and more about drama, but both Edward II and Tamburlaine end in the title character's death. In moving from Bolingbroke to his son, says Jonathan Bate, Shakespeare reverses this Marlowian pattern of rise and fall into a new pattern of fall and rise, charted in Hal's progress from a prince to apprentice to a king. 
and the consequence of this is that the Marlovian two-part structure could finally be overcome with the triumphant three-part structure of Henry IV and V. Shakespeare, having previously imitated Marlowe, had reached the point in his career where he could outgrow his rival. Marlowe, it should be said, in fairness, had made the matter much easier by good-naturedly being murdered. It is a typical pattern of growth to first imitate and then to contrast, and Shakespeare's pattern is mirrored by his two Henrys. As W.H. Auden writes, both Henry IV and Hal have a sense of what is the politically wise thing to do. Bolingbroke's behaviour is dictated by the need to contrast himself to Richard, Hal's need to contrast himself to his father. In politics, you have to surprise. Richard II, the man, had skipped around his kingdom too much. Bolingbroke, the man, is solemn, pious and austere. Richard II, the play, had the structure of high tragedy, whereas Henry IV, the play, ends in triumph and is stuffed with perpetual gaiety. In structure, it more resembles a morality play. Hal, despite his royal roots, is something of an everyman, the central character who must redeem himself, aided and abetted by advisers and tempters. Falstaff has long been traditionally thought of as an avatar for the vice figure in morality plays, but as John Dover Wilson points out, Hal associates Falstaff in turn with the devil of the miracle play, the vice of the morality, and the riot of the interlude, when he calls him that villainous, abominable misleader of youth, that old white-bearded Satan, that reverend vice, that grey iniquity, that father ruffian, that vanity in years and the tutor and feeder of my riots. Here, Shakespeare is beginning to commingle ritualistic forms of theatre like the miracle and morality play with historical record. And in so doing, he creates a form befitting his age, an age of disparity, where huge leaps forward in scientific discovery and geographical exploration coincided with a golden age of witch hunting. As C.L. Barber says, though the Renaissance moment made the tension between a magical and empirical view of man particularly acute, this pull is, of course, always present. It is the tension between heart and the world. By incarnating ritual as plot and character, the dramatist finds an embodiment for the heart's drastic gestures while recognising how the world keeps comically and tragically giving them the lie. first read Henry IV, I remember thinking, uh, I don't understand what all the fuss about Falstaff is, to be honest, I don't think he's that funny. Uh, it took until you see a really funny performance for it to, for it to, oh wait, I get it now. I think that's why the prose characters are often more iconic and more sought after by actors as well. You think Falstaff, Malvolio, Benedict, Beatrice, the prose heavy characters because they rely so much more on the individual actor to interpret it, perhaps give those actors more ownership over what they're doing than some of the verse parts maybe do. Because with the verse parts, there's more structure there to, to guide your exploration, I suppose. Well, I think the thing is, yeah, with the verse is that if, if you're an actor who's familiar with work, working with Shakespeare in verse, you might be able to get through that sort of decoding step quicker, and then you've just got this rich treasure treasure chest of uh, of tools to use to help your performance. But if you're someone who's not used to that, you've then actually got a few hurdles to get through to really identify all of those opportunities and all of that decoding. So the pros, you don't have to do that step, but then you're left with a bit more of a blank canvas so there's more opportunity to play, but there's 
less structure and less clarity given to you. So it, yeah. I think it really, a lot of it comes down to probably what type of actor you are and, and where your, your natural uh, preference lies with, with performance. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting to me as well, though, that the prose is no less rich with opportunity and no less stunning in its, in its linguistic facility than the verse. And I think that, again, for me, is another argument against it being, quote, unquote, common people talk, <laughs> because the structures that are the rhetorical structures that are present in the prose are still every bit as effective, intricate and powerful as those that are in the verse. But again, you have to be able to see them. In strong contrast to the versified Richard II, almost half of Henry IV is in prose. One of the musical effects of this tetralogy can only be appreciated by reading or seeing the plays in sequence. Richard II's ornate and ubiquitous verse gives the sense of a nation in harmony, a nation where even the gardeners are in a sense in key with the king. But once that king has been deposed, then in Henry IV we have this explosion of discordant voices, who speak in either verse or prose. And there are even some fence-walking alley cats like the prince, who have mastered both. The variety of vocal effects in Henry IV has led Mark Van Doren to say nothing that he wrote is more crowded with life or happier in its imitation of human talk. The imitation bit is important. One thing we forget watching Shakespeare now is that he had the same problem one has today when writing dialogue for historical figures. Period costume, as T.S. Eliot remarked, renders speaking verse acceptable, but it also goes both ways. Having characters like Henry IV or Richard II speak in verse carries with it the sense of historical authority and nobility we accept automatically, and gets rid of the problem of speaking in age-appropriate vernacular. Put simply, without even trying, verse sounds old-timey. So by introducing prose, you have to face the authenticity problem head-on. Some writers attempt what Robert Louis Stevenson called tushery, fudging up a speech pattern until it sounds ye olde enough. A few well-placed thous and I prithies will suffice. To modern ears, the characters in a play like Henry IV sound historically consistent, in that they sound appropriately old, whether or not they are speaking verse or prose. But what Shakespeare's first audiences would have heard was verse that signalled authentic history and prose that sounded modern. Seen this way, the words of characters like Falstaff sound something like historical defacement, antic mockery in the margins of the history books. L.B. Campbell has called Falstaff historically an intruder, and though he and the other prose speakers tip their hat to tushery, their language is full of contemporary references, and it shows. Charles Edelman asks, If the setting is the early 1400s, what is Falstaff doing with a pistol case at the Battle of Shrewsbury, many years before the wheel-lock pistol was known in England? A closer look at this and other apparent anachronisms reveals an interesting pattern, however. Nearly all occur within the so-called comic world of Falstaff, Poins, and for the first half of the play, Prince Hal. The most famous location in the play is not the battlefield of Shrewsbury, but the Boar's Head Tavern in Eastcheap. The tavern scenes alternate with those depicting historical events, and the tavern itself does the job of forests in other Shakespeare plays. Hal doesn't have to skip into the woods to alter himself, he gets drunk. Actually no, he doesn't. He surrounds himself with drinkers, but rather creepily remains sober and watchful himself. But he doesn't need alcohol to change his personality or tousle his accent. The tavern is already a place of transformation where he can cease to be a prince and instead be a commoner. Or even in the famous play extempore scene, the longest scene in the play, become his own father and role-play being king. In Shakespeare's day, the boar's head was neither historical nor an invention. According to John Dover Wilson, 
The sight of the tavern in Eastcheap is now as deep sunk in the ooze of human forgetfulness as that of the Palace of Haroon, but it was once a real hostelry and must have meant much to Londoners of the reigns of Elizabeth and James. In other words, those first audiences saw the historical Henry V cavorting in their local boozer. Both Falstaff and Henry IV give the young prince very different kinds of fatherly wisdom, and in alternating scenes become strange reflections of one another. As the real king pales and sickens, fat Jack Falstaff lards the ground with sweat. As an act of historical defacement, Falstaff works superbly well. For starters, he's about the right shape for a wrecking ball, and in the words of William Empson, Falstaff is the first major joke by the English against their class system. He is a picture of how badly you can behave and still get away with it if you are a gentleman. A mere common rogue would not have been nearly so funny. Falstaff is a knight, after all, but one who has either left the gentry or more likely been forcibly kicked out to live among commoners. Morris Morgan, whose famous essay of 1777 tentatively defended Falstaff against the charge of cowardice, said that he is a character made up by Shakespeare wholly of incongruities, a man at once young and old, enterprising and fat, a dupe and a wit, harmless and wicked, weak in principle and resolute by conviction, cowardly in appearance and brave in reality, a knave without malice, a liar without deceit, and a knight, a gentleman, and a soldier without either dignity, decency, or honour. Many critics have put their reason for loving Falstaff down to his self-satisfaction, his self-containment, his biggest subversion of the history genre he finds himself in being that he seemingly exists out of time. While hot-headed Hotspur says, Oh gentlemen, the time of life is short. To spend that shortness basely were too long, if life did ride upon a dial's point still ending at the arrival of an hour. At the same time, Bardolph tells Falstaff, Why, you are so fat, Sir John, that you must needs be out of all compass, out of all reasonable compass. When Falstaff asks him what time it is, Hal responds bewildered, What a devil has thou to do with the time of the day? Falstaff's world, according to Robert B. Pierce, is essentially a private world without clocks, a world of sack and tavern jests and highway robbery, of prose. And Falstaff was a quite literal act of historical defacement too. The character originally carried the name Sir John Oldcastle. This was something that caused controversy when the play was first performed, as Oldcastle's descendants were furious at the depiction. And rightly so, as the debauched portrait Shakespeare presents was far from befitting a former high sheriff, though there remained plenty of truth in it. According to Peter Saccio, Oldcastle certainly was a friend of Hal's, but he was a man very different from Falstaff. He was a distinguished soldier and a dedicated Lollard, to whose execution for heresy and treason the orthodox Hal consented in 1417. Here we have the vestigial traces of Falstaff's fate. Part 2 ends in Hal's abandonment of his former companion, falling out of favour just as the historical Oldcastle did. CWRD Mosley points out that Falstaff's line, By the Lord, I'll be a traitor then, when thou art king, surely alludes to the fact Oldcastle did become a traitor when Henry V became king, and he did turn upon the true prince of part one. Henry V did try to reconvert Oldcastle, and this seems to be the point of the illusion in part one. I'll be damned for never a king's son in Christendom. The historical Oldcastle was burnt. Falstaff is compared in part one to a roasted manning tree ox. The historian John Stowe records the story that Oldcastle at his execution said he would rise again in three days. Falstaff rises from the dead at Shrewsbury. More obvious traces of Oldcastle remain in both plays. Hal puns on the original's name when he calls Falstaff my old lad of the castle. 
And at the end of part two, there is an epilogue where it is said that our humble author will continue the story with Sir John in it. In France, where, for anything I know, Falstaff shall die of a sweat, unless already he be killed with your hard opinions. For Oldcastle died martyr, and this is not the man. Theatrical retribution for the Oldcastles came with the performance of a new play in 1600, called The True and Honourable History of the Life of Sir John Oldcastle, the Good Lord Cobham. It is a measure of how deeply felt the transgression of Falstaff was. What Empson called the major joke had ridiculed a class system that had gone unchallenged for far too long. As Victor Kiernan says, In the early histories, nearly everyone belonged to much the same mould. Now, England can give birth to a pair as antithetical as Hotspur and Falstaff, borderer and town loiterer. They are centuries apart in outlook, yet in very different ways, both are men of the past, descended from common feudal origins. The two, as I have said, can dominate in performance, and the lasting tableau from the play's closing scenes is that of Hal on the battlefield of Shrewsbury, standing over the corpses of Falstaff and Hotspur, not yet knowing that the former is only playing dead. Mockery is something that comes so naturally to Falstaff, he can do it lying down. Throughout the play, before they even come into contact, the fat knight lampoons the serious knight. And as Mark Van Doren has said, Hotspur was very serious. He was almost, indeed, insanely serious. When Hotspur feels some seriousness coming on, he is given to flights of heroic poetry. Methinks it were an easy leap to pluck bright honour from the pale-faced moon, or dive into the bottom of the deep, where fathom line could never touch the ground. Falstaff inverts this easy leap, complaining when made to run that eight yards of uneven ground is threescore and ten miles a foot with me. It is Falstaff who is called sweet creature of bombast, but it could apply just as well to Hotspur, whose rhetoric is frequently stirring and nightly. Shall it for shame be spoken in these days, or fill up chronicles in time to come, that men of your nobility and power did gauge them both in an unjust behalf, as both of you, God pardon it, have done? to put down Richard, that sweet lovely rose, and plant this thorn, this canker, Bolingbroke. Hotspur's problem is that he's a stirring and knightly hero on the wrong side of history and in the wrong play. His chivalric credentials are mocked by Howe. Hotspur of the North, he that kills me some six or seven dozen of Scots at a breakfast, washes his hands and says to his wife, fie upon this quiet life, I want work. This isn't criticism entirely free of compliment, and neither is the description of the Douglas, he that rides at high speed, and with his pistol kills a sparrow flying. This is a fearful-sounding knight, but it's not a portrait totally free of silliness. Hotspur, too, is capable of scorn. He scorns Hal as the nimble-footed madcap Prince of Wales. He also scorns his Welsh ally Owen Glendower for banging on about the prophecies of Merlin and mythologising his own birth. I had rather live with cheese and garlic in a windmill far than feed on cates and have him talk to me in any summer house in Christendom, says Hotspur. So he isn't humourless, but he does fail to see his own worldview is also outdated. The honour code that Hotspur venerates is trampled on by Falstaff, who in a famous catechism asks, What is honour? A word. What is in that word honour? What is that honour? Air. A trim reckoning. Who hath it? He that died a Wednesday. Doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. Tis insensible, then. Yea, to the dead. But will it not live with the living? No. Why? Detraction will not suffer it. Therefore, I'll none of it. Honour is a mere scutcheon. Rational, dishonourable, life-loving Falstaff counterfeits death, awakes, stabs Hotspur's dead body, and claims he slew him.
At the very beginning of the play, the Duke of Westmoreland shivers to tell of the thousand dead in battle with the Welsh. Upon whose dead corpse there was such misuse, such beastly shameless transformation, by those Welsh women done as may not be without much shame retold or spoken of. In any civilised society it is bad form to mutilate the dead, but is especially true in chivalry, where even a fierce opponent, providing he dies honourably, is entitled to a decent burial. By the end of the play, not only has Hotspur allied himself with the man responsible for these misdeeds, Glendower, but his own body, honourably slain, is abused by Falstaff. In the words of Victor Kiernan, it is against a background of an old society crumbling that its concept of honour is being called into question. Falstaff, the renegade gentleman, derides it. Hotspur idolises it, but makes it look silly by his extravagance, and with him it lacks any serious meaning. It has sunk into mere vainglory, or a figment of fancy to be snatched from the pale-faced moon. One indication of this descent is that the old chivalric linkage of honour with love, Mars with Venus, and both of them with the minstrel's art, has broken down. Hotspur has only a rough-and-ready regard for his wife, thinks oftener of his horse, and makes mock of mincing poetry. And yet Hotspur does have a poetry of his own, one that doesn't mince but leaps and snorts with distemper. It is a poetry that Mark Van Doren rates highly, saying that in Hotspur, Shakespeare has learned at last to make poetry as natural as the human voice, as natural, furthermore, as Falstaff's prose. He must have been fond of his creation, of this high-strung youth who was so far above liking the art he mastered, who could be a fine poet without knowing that he was, who indeed made his poetry out of a hot love for nothing except reality and hard sense. For the paradox of Hotspur is the paradox of Shakespeare, the best poet's least pampers and preens his talent. Both Hotspur and Falstaff have their own hard sense of reality, but of course only one sense can be correct. Hotspur's reality is that of a bygone age, while Falstaff lives in the present and knows it. Banish plump Jack, he says, and banish all the world. Both conceal nothing from others, writes W.H. Auden. Falstaff because he has no mask to put on, Hotspur because he has so become his mask that he has no face beneath it. The first part of Henry IV might owe some of its perpetual gaiety to its representing a success for secular common sense. The idealism of Hotspur and Henry IV are mocked, Hal is not yet king, and Falstaff claims the victor's spoils, thanks to his rational cowardice, love of life, and simple wish that it were bedtime and all well. As John Bailey writes, Just as Don Quixote is forever the personification of that inner secret of every man, in which he is or desires to be, knight-errant, saint or poet, so Falstaff is the visible embodiment of that other part of us all, in which the flesh speaks too loud for the spirit to be heard. Over the critical dinner table, comparisons have long abounded between the dish and the spoon, that fat knight of England and the thin knight of Spain. According to Henry Mackenzie, the ridicule in the character of Don Quixote consists in raising low and vulgar incidents through the medium of his disordered fancy to a rank of importance, dignity and solemnity, to which in their nature they are the most opposite that can be imagined. With Falstaff, it is nearly the reverse. The ridicule is produced by subjecting wisdom, honour, and other of the most grave and dignified principles to the control of grossness, buffoonery, and folly. Um, you mentioned the, the these sort of groups of groups of characters milling around in in part one the um, the Percy's, King, the King Henry and his court, and then obviously Hal and his group of mates. Um, there's obviously quite a few doubles going on, Hotspur and and Hal and so on. Is it useful from a production perspective, and maybe this is more for a production perspective when you've got time to think about these kind of things, 
but is it useful to put them together in terms of identifying those? I think for me, it's baked into the text to such an extent that that to me feels almost structural. So you get it for free. There's certain things obviously that you can do to emphasize it once you're into the production. I think perhaps because Henry the Fourth Part One is one of those plays that I've been in before, I was more familiar with it. And so that stuff felt more apparent to me where if I was coming at it for the first time ever, maybe that wouldn't have been as, I suppose, obvious or transparent. But yeah, the the doubles for me are really interesting. And for me, what I the, the mirrored structure, what they call the chiasmus in rhetorical language, is something that Shakespeare will use in a single line. So in Antony and Cleopatra, purple the sails and so perfumed, P-S-S-P. And he creates these structural uh, kind of chiasmus in the text. He uses it constantly as a literary device through character from scene to scene as well. Certain scenes mirror other scenes. So you've got, for instance, Hal in the tower, uh, sorry, Hal in the tavern doing the play extempore, to me feels like a really clear mirror with Hotspur and Glendower in Wales listening to a song by their wives. But one of them is 90% business and 5% having fun. And the other one is 90% having fun and 5% business. Mm. So you see that Shakespeare is absolutely using contrast. That's, it. That's his number one favourite device is antithesis, right? Taking strong contrasts slamming them together like in a particle accelerator to release all of the energy that you get when you smash them together. And that for me as a director is the number one thing that I'm looking to draw out and emphasize as we go through is just contrast, but that's contrast in all its forms. When it comes to contrasts of character, I find it interesting that with Percy and Hotspur, for instance, they're fascinating because they're balanced they're both balanced with their flaws and strengths in in opposite camps. And then they, they come together and they cross over as the play progresses. And, and that crossover happens when they fight, essentially. You know, Hal defeats him. And in our production, we put in a thing that is maybe subtle enough that you might miss it. But uh, in the tavern, uh, Falstaff throws a jacket over Poinzer's face in order to steal his pint. And then the way that Hal defeats Hotspur is by grabbing his cloak and throwing it over his face and using it to drag him, drag him to the ground. The idea of street smarts, as John Mullaney might put it. Um, and we wanted to show the, the fundamental difference between them as one of the fundamental evolution of what politics is and what honour is. Hotspur represents the older chivalric tradition and he occupies a space where magic still exists, or at least where people still believe in the power of magic. Merlin is referenced. Mm. You know, you're talking about references to the, the Arthurian legends. This is one of the very few plays in which, in which you get an explicit reference to something from Arthurian legends with Glendower. And he represents old school honor, might makes right, God will decide the victor kind of politics. On the other hand, Hal represents the Machiavellian prince. And I don't mean that in the way it's used in modern terms, where that just means, I am evil. Not Machiavellian in that sense, Machiavellian in terms of hard, practical, realistic politics. Interestingly enough, 
Machiavelli wrote that treatise, The Prince, in common Italian, not in Latin, so that everyone could read it and understand how the mechanisms of power function. Similarly, Shakespeare staging how the politics of power really function so everyday people can witness it and interpret it. Mm. So there was a, there was a, what's the word that I'm looking for? Subversive quality to Machiavelli's original and a subversive quality to Shakespeare taking that and staging it and putting it in front of people, watching it practically happen. Bolingbroke was the first example of that. He decided, you know, in Richard II, is constantly this mirror between Richard, who is pandering to the elite, and Bolingbroke, who is a favourite of the common person. Hal then goes on to do that, and Henry chews him out for it and says, you shouldn't be doing that because that's what Richard did. And I've always found that a, a bit of a bizarre sore thumb in, in that play, to be honest, because my understanding of what I saw in uh, Richard II was that Bolingbroke was absolutely doing a similar thing to what uh, Hal's doing. He was just doing it, I guess, with the middle class, with the barons, rather than necessarily the, the nobodies, the common folk. But Hal is the first successful Machiavellian prince mm. in Shakespeare's writing because he goes to the bottom like Bruce Wayne in Batman Begins. He, go, he goes homeless, he goes rogue, he learns what it's like to steal, to survive, and he learns their language. You know, there was a, there was a line in there about they call drinking deep, dying scarlet. And he says, I've learned in 15 minutes enough to be able to converse with any man for a lifetime. And you see that come back in Henry V, when he, when he goes out in disguise and he goes as a, as a debate with the common soldiery at that point. Similarly with, you know, once more unto the breach, like one of the most famous speeches in Shakespeare is about him talking to normal, ordinary people as if they're on the same level as him. And, and St. Crispin's Day does the same thing again. And that's why I wasn't going to go into it, but I'm going to go into it. It's why the hollow crown Tom Hiddleston version really pissed me off is because they decided to do St. Crispin's Day to six toffs and nobody else. And I was like, you have fundamentally misunderstood the individual and the arc of these plays and one of the most extraordinary journeys that uh, any character in Shakespeare goes on. Towards the end of Richard II, as CWRD Mosley has written, Bolingbroke's actions begin to have an air of calculation. To be not quite what they seem, the man who comes but for his own, very soon acts like a monarch in condemning Bushy, Green and Baggett to death, which he certainly has no obvious right to do. Silently, Bolingbroke escalates his project. He goes from reclaiming his lands to snatching the throne. In the first part of his own play, he counsels his son to be similarly sneaky. I stole all courtesy from heaven and dressed myself in such humility that I did pluck allegiance from men's hearts, loud shouts and salutations from their mouths, even in the presence of the crowned king. Thus did I keep my person fresh and new, my presence like a robe pontifical, ne'er seen but wondered at, and so my state, seldom but sumptuous, showed like a feast, and won by rareness such solemnity. And while he thinks his son has lost his princely privilege with vile participation, in fact, as James C. Bullman writes, though Henry is ignorant of it, Hal has patterned his behaviour on that of his father, carefully calculating the moment to seize what he never asked for. In the first scene that we meet Hal, he is speaking in prose with Falstaff, who implores the prince to step out of time. Let us be Diana's foresters, gentlemen of the shade, minions of the moon. 
But Hal, left alone on stage at the end of the scene, slips into verse and affirms his place in history, showing us that he's already learnt from his father's example. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world. That when he please again to be himself being wanted, he may be more wondered at, by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapours that did seem to strangle him. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work. But when they seldom come, they wished for come, and nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So, when this loose behaviour I throw off and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground my reformation glittering o'er my fault shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend, and make offence a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. Another advantage to come from this period of loose behaviour, of playing holidays, is that Hal is now able to speak like a commoner. Unlike his father, unlike Hotspur, Hal can slip from verse to prose, be prince or everyman, whenever he chooses. This is a skill that will arm the prince well, and would be the envy of any politician. E.M.W. Tilliard says that later when Hal says to Poins he has sounded the bass string of humility, he uses a musical metaphor. He means in one sense that he has touched the bottom limit of condescension, but he means something more. He is the bow that has got a response from the lowest string of the instrument. We are to think he has sounded all the other human strings already. He has now completed the range of the human gamut. Hotspur and Hal's father are figures of the past. They sound as if they belong in Richard II. Hal, meanwhile, in distancing himself from both, has learnt when to be a prince and when to be a man of the people. James C. Bullman writes, When Hal turns from Hotspur's corpse, he finds Falstaff lying as if dead. In a stage allegory reminiscent of the morality plays, Hal, a princely everyman, stands between the paragon of chivalric virtue he has just overcome and the proponent of self-interest, deception and pragmatism, which he has also shown himself adept at practising. Falstaff deceives Hal at the conclusion of this play, taking the glory of killing Hotspur from him in the process. Hal doesn't argue the toss, but in the following play, it will be Falstaff who will be left deceived. Never call a true piece of gold a counterfeit, Fat Jack advises Hal, and Robert B. Pierce writes that here Falstaff attests his virtue and worth live untainted under the disreputable appearance of his exterior. Just as Hal's royalty is hidden but not obliterated by his youthful pranks, Falstaff uses the figure of coins being stamped to suggest one Renaissance view of moral aristocracy. Like pure gold, inherited virtue cannot be corrupted by external circumstances. But it is precisely this fact about Hal that makes Falstaff's eventual rejection certain. I was going to say the in Henry IV Part One, the one of the moments that absolutely stands out to me is in that role-playing scene when after they've switched, so uh, Hal is playing his father and Falstaff is playing Hal, mm. and Falstaff has the speech about you will you will send me away, and and Hal just has I do I will, and it's heartbreaking, it's absolutely heartbreaking. You've had this you know, hugely sort of rambunctious scene of just them playing. And, you know, in in our production, we had the actors were doing, you know, voices taking off the other actors playing those roles. Um, and it and it was so, so full of joy and, and silliness. And then just that, that little one line at the end before 
the scene completely changes direction, just poof. But for sweet Jack Falstaff, kind Jack Falstaff, true Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff, and therefore more valiant being as he is, old Jack Falstaff, banish not him thy Harry's company. Banish plump Jack and banish all the world. I do. <laughs> I will. According to a critic with the diverting name of Ronald MacDonald, it is those who do not grow in language, who do not submit themselves to its shifting substance and stubborn materiality, who are defeated by history in the world of the Henry IV plays. Hotspur is thoroughly naive in relation to the language he speaks. Meanwhile, Hal has learned not only to speak in the language of all men, but also to play roles, a skill that will be used to more sinister effect by the later king, Richard III. The Henry IV place in particular seem to be, there's various little tragedies, not, and not very little tragedies going on, of people getting typecast and sort of stuck in roles that they can't get out of. False stuff depends on Hal's friendship. That doesn't work out very well for him in the end. Henry IV depends on his status as a successful usurper king. That doesn't work out too well for him. Hotspur is dependent on his strength and tries to be a mirror to Hal. Doesn't work out for him. But Hal uses the lot of them and can and teaches himself enough before he is king to move, move between them all, which seems to link back to that kind of present tense, restless um, idea of verse and being able to think on your feet, not having everything rehearsed. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it also links into those tensions in the Elizabethan time of needing needing a unifier, needing someone that was going to bring all these problematic tensions back together again, because yeah. at that point, as it does now, <laughs> feels like a big job, feels like you need a superhero to be capable of that. And Hal really is the closest thing you get to a Captain America, right? He's Captain England. Mm. He's, he comes from humble origins, you know, he doesn't really, he's, you know, son of a king, but he goes to the humble place. Again, Bruce Wayne in Batman. He, learn, he learns how to communicate with those people. He does extraordinary feats in arms, which I think is one of those things that is very often missed about how, is that speech that Vernon has where he says he, he had all of his armour on and he jumped from the ground in full armour onto the back of his horse in one fluid motion. So he's Legolas in Lord of the Rings, right? You can, you can jump on a horse from the ground in heavy armour. That's insane. That's insane. I've gotten on a horse before, not many times, but I've done it. It's hard. It's hard to do it normally, never mind doing it in a single bound. He's, he's written as a superhero. He yeah. spends no time in the play. You know, even in Hamlet, Shakespeare tries to give you an idea that Hamlet has been in continual practice ahead of fighting Laertes to give you a sense of why can this guy overcome this guy. We see Hal do nothing but get drunk. <laughs> and then he walks to the battlefield, injured, having fought the Douglas, who is the superhero on the other side, because he can run a horse up a cliff, right? He's fought the Douglas, wounded, to a standstill, to the point where Douglas runs away, bonkers. Having done all that, he still has energy enough to kill Hotspur, who is the paragon of chivalry and Arthurian knightsmanship, for lack of a better word. He's a superhero. I'm sorry, but he is. You've got to look at him as, as a person of extraordinary means and extraordinary feats. 
And the idea that they were looking for someone like that <laughs> at, at the time that they were living, to me, feels revealing, I guess. Yeah. Though Hal admits he has a truant been to chivalry, when he faces off against Hotspur, he speaks in the tones of one correcting the universal order. Two stars keep not their motion in one sphere. We saw and heard similar language in Richard II. The sky couldn't hold the son of Richard and the son of Bolingbroke, and the natural world sickened and was disordered by civil war. This kind of imagery will continue throughout the history plays, but in the two parts of Henry IV, the imagery takes on a specific bent. As R.J. Dorius says, waste and destruction is associated in these plays with an apparently antithetical theme, fatness or excessive growth. When Worcester says, referring to Richard, for whose death we in the world's wide mouth live scandalised and foully spoken of. He is talking of chatter and rumour-mongering, but his phrasing inevitably conjures a mouth widening to eat something foul. Growth in the wake of bloody murder is an association met with disgust, as Bolingbroke said at the close of Richard II, My soul is full of woe, that blood should sprinkle me to make me grow. The thought hasn't left his mind between the plays. He opens this one, vowing to end civil strife, saying, No more the thirsty entrance of this soil shall daub her lips with her own children's blood. No more shall trenching war channel her fields, nor bruise her flowerets with the armoured hoofs of hostile paces. As Hotspur dies on the field at Shrewsbury, he says, O Harry, thou hast robbed me of my youth. Percy, thou art dust, and food for... For worms, Hal says then looking down on his slain rival, continues, Ill-weaved ambition, how much art thou shrunk, when that this body did contain a spirit, a kingdom for it was too small a bound, but now two paces of the vilest earth is room enough. By contrast, when he looks upon what he takes to be the corpse of Falstaff, he asks, Could not all this flesh keep in a little life? R.J. Dorius points out that Henry IV has grown portly with the help of the Percys, who chide him that he did grow by our feeding to so great a bulk that even our love durst not come near your sight for fear of swallowing. Dorius goes on to say that here the eaters are eaten and the would-be physicians become centres of contagion. The lean may wax and the fat wane, but all go to extremes. Bolingbroke might be a forgetful man, in Hotspur's phrase, and have grown to a figurative great bulk, but physically he is wasting away. Falstaff, on the other hand, in these times of hardship, is somehow fat, obscene, a grease tallow catch. In reference to this particular epithet, John Dover Wilson writes tallow meant to the Elizabethans liquid fat, and human sweat was likewise thought of as fat melted by the heat of the body, which gives us the wonderful image of Falstaff as he sweats to death and lards the lean earth as he walks along. Falstaff is a world unto himself, and treasures his bulk as a good king should treasure his lands. William Hazlitt, writing in 1817, said that his body is like a good estate to his mind, from which he receives rents and revenues of profit and pleasure in kind, according to its extent and the richness of the soil. What has gone wrong for Henry IV is that in deposing Richard, he has gone against the very order he tries to uphold, a recurring theme in these history plays. Henry still wants what Richard had, and cannot fully appreciate that his own actions have destroyed those privileges, shattered a single line of succession into a surplus of contenders for the throne. At the Battle of Shrewsbury, Sir Walter Blunt furnishes himself to appear like the king, and is slain by the fearsome Douglas. When Douglas then sees the genuine Henry IV, he says, Another king? 
They grow like Hydra's heads. I am the Douglas, fatal to all those that wear those colours on them. What art thou that counterfeits the person of the king? According to Robert N. Watson, this allusion to a Hydra may serve to remind us that Henry has pitted himself against the same sort of unbeatable foe. By causing the assassination of the one rightful king, he has created two heads, as factions are often called, that are vying for the throne. You have deceived our trust, made us off our easy robes of peace, crush our old limbs on gentle steel. This is not well, my lord. My liege, I do protest. I have not sought the day of this dislike. We have not sought it, sir. How comes it then? Rebellion lay in his way, and he found it. To pick up on actually, firstly on mirrored structures, Eric Rasmussen, who co-edited uh, the massive RSE complete works that I still use every week when I'm preparing the plays, he was our guest introducer, and he talked about the scene in the tavern with Tom, Dick, and Francis, and obviously the 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 typical phrasing being Tom, Dick, and Harry. So the idea of there being a mirror between Francis, who is getting pulled between two people, being uh, Poins and Hal, both shouting him to come and get them drinks and how being pulled between his father and the court and the tavern where he'd rather be spending his time. And the idea that that was a mirror there between the commonest servant in the world getting pulled between two masters and how himself being pulled between those two tensions. So that was point one. So then the other really interesting thing that Eric said was that if you're recovering from addiction, the thing that they tell you is that you can't occupy the same spaces and you can't hang around with the same people uh, because that is all going to tempt you back into your old habits, your old ways of doing things. And so with Hal being a Machiavellian prince, he is the author of his own destiny. He says at the very beginning, you know, I, I will a while uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness, but then I'm not going to anymore. And then as a result of not doing that, I will shine even brighter because I set the bar low. <laughs> I set expectations low and then exceeded them. So he tells us as the audience up front, this is what I'm doing. There's a difference between telling someone you're going to do something and actually doing it. And I think the addiction metaphor that Eric introduced has really stayed with me and resonated as we move into part two for that exact reason. Because for me, it, it cannot be easy for Hal to give up his friendships and to give up that relationship with Falstaff, mm. who in many ways has been a co-equal father figure <laughs> with the much more distant Henry IV. And both father figures will return in part two, which I'll be discussing next time on the podcast, joined once again by Rob and Sarah. As we shall see, the second part is a very different beast, as all four plays in this tetralogy are. Stanley Wells has written... Shakespeare's style as both poet and dramatist developed greatly while he was writing these four plays. I don't mean by this that the plays get progressively better, only that Shakespeare could not stand still long enough to write four plays all in the same mode. I hope you're enjoying these episodes on the history plays. If this is the first one you've heard, do go back and listen to some of our other ones. We've released episodes on Richard II, as well as Marlowe's Edward II, and the play Edward III, contentiously claimed as Shakespeare's. If you like what you hear and fancy leaving us a review, you can do so on iTunes or Acast, or if you'd like to support the podcast and access exclusive episodes, you can do so at patreon.com slash eerythis. A huge thank you to Rob Miles and Sarah Peachy. Once again, you can access their fantastic work in the episode description box below. If you want to hear more from Henry IV, Hal and Falstaff, I highly recommend watching their productions. But that's all for today until part two. Till then, happy reading. <laughs>